on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the October 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Arianne Lewis. She's the assistant professor from New York University Langone Medical Center, Departments of Neurology and Neurosurgery in the Division of Neurocritical Care in New York, New York. She's here to talk about her article, Point, Should Informed Consent Be Required for Apnea Testing in Patients with Suspected Brain Death? No. Dr. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kyle. And our next guest, Dr. Robert Trug, the Francis Glesner Lee Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesia and Pediatrics, the Harvard Medical School Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative and Pain Medicine, Division of Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. He's here to discuss his article, Counterpoint, Should Informed Consent Be Required for Apnea Testing in Patients with Suspected Brain Death? Yes. Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kyle. Glad to be here. So, Arianne and Bob, said, you know, before we kind of launch into the pro-con here, you know, let, let our listeners know, let, let's set some framework for, I guess, everybody. One, um, let's talk about brain death, you know, from the just sort of what are the rules, if you will, slash the science. And let's talk then about also the, the cases that have sort of, you know, why this debate's even happening, what, what sort of thrusts this upon us as a discussion point. And then, right. we'll, launch so, in, and then we'll launch into your, uh, you know, into the pro-con. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, brain death is something that gets determined in the setting of catastrophic brain injury uh, in when a patient is comatose, has absent brainstem reflexes, and is unable to breathe spontaneously. Uh, and when this is the situation, it's necessary to ensure that there's irreversible brain injury and that there's a clear etiology for the brain injury based upon CSF findings or neuroimaging uh, that can demonstrate what the reason was why the patient had their injury. In conducting the examination, uh, part of the uh, exam in order to determine brain death is doing an apnea test, and that's how one evaluates for absence of spontaneous breathing. And that's the last portion of the exam that gets conducted, and the patient is taken off of the ventilator for a period of about eight minutes, during which you wait for the carbon dioxide levels to rise and the pH to fall. Uh, And as the acidity um, increases uh, in the blood, then that leads or should lead the medullary respiratory centers to cause the patient to breathe. However, in the setting of brain injury that is so severe, then this doesn't happen, which is indicative of brain death. Okay. And the, um, like you had said earlier, the, the apnea test is the last test. So clearly along the way, any evaluations by the neurologic team that would indicate brain, brain stem or higher activity, you don't even proceed on to the apnea test because you've already got evidence that there is not a brain death. Correct, exactly. You don't do an apnea test until you've demonstrated definitively that the patient is comatose and has no brainstem reflexes. So they have no pupillary response, no corneal response, no cough, no gag, negative dolls, and negative cold calorics. Okay. And then also um, the, the ins and outs of the actual apnea test. I mean, clearly they can't be on, have sedatives on board. There can't be paralytics on board. I mean, that's some stuff that seems, I guess, relatively obvious, but just to round it out, can we make sure that what are the parameters for ultimately doing an apnea test? Sure. So even when you're just doing the brain death evaluation, it's necessary to make sure that prerequisites are met. So there's a specific temperature that the patient needs to be. So guidelines for adults are based upon uh, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines, which were initially written in 1995 and then updated in 2010. And the guidelines for pediatric patients were uh, written originally in 1987 and then updated in 2011 uh, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the uh, 
Child Neurology Society. Uh, the guidelines are slightly different in the two groups, but in terms of adults, uh, it's necessary to ensure when you're doing the brain death evaluation and the apnea test that temperature is greater than 36 degrees Celsius. Uh, you need to have a systolic blood pressure that's greater than 100. Um, in pediatric patients, temperature needs to be greater than 35, and, temp- and blood pressure needs to be normal based on age. In both age groups, it's necessary to ensure that there's no sedatives on board, so you want to have allowed for five half-lives to pass from any sedatives the patient may have received, and even longer if there's any evidence of liver or kidney injury. You also want to ensure, as you noted, that there's no evidence of neuromuscular blockade on board, so it might be necessary to uh, perform a train of four in order to ensure that's the case. You need to make sure there's no severe electrolyte derangements, no evidence of intoxication, uh, no severe acid-base abnormalities, or no endocrine abnormalities that would prevent you from doing the exam because it would be something that would make you say that perhaps that some other problem was impacting the exam that was not the underlying irreversible injury. Okay. So now we have that down because that's going to be the core of obviously, you know, we're ultimately all about suspecting brain death and trying to diagnose it and getting to the apnea test, which is the core of the debate. This this debate got thrust upon, I think, based off, it's probably always been around, but I think two recent legal cases have really brought this to bear, has been at least my understanding, and having read both of your articles, um, uh, and that's why, if you could outline, I guess, also for our listeners, and without a doubt, they should, uh, you know, after you've listened to the podcast or before, please read the articles because for sure they will highlight, uh, I think, the, the, the key background here quite well for our listeners. But um, if either one of you want to dive into the legal cases that brought this to uh, our discussion today. Ryan, do you want to mention uh, one or both before we start? or Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, so there were two cases that took place uh, in the past few years that dealt with uh, consent for apnea testing. So the first was in Montana, uh, in which there was a child who was going to be declared brain dead. They had been demonstrated to be comatose and to have absent brainstem reflexes. The clinicians at the hospital there approached the mother to request permission to be able to perform a brain death evaluation. Uh, the mother gave her permission for them to do so. Uh, They then conducted the evaluation, and in pediatric patients, it's necessary to perform two apnea tests in order to uh, determine brain death. And so in the first apnea test, the carbon dioxide level rose significantly above the threshold that is necessary to be. So in pediatric patients, it's necessary for the carbon dioxide level to rise by 20 um, and to be greater than 60 millimeters of mercury. And if that's the case and there's no breathing, then that demonstrates that there's inability to breathe. So they performed the first apnea test, and the patient did not breathe. Uh, Subsequently, when they were getting ready to perform the second apnea test, uh, the family objected to performance of the test, stating that they were concerned that apparently they felt as though the patient had looked to be in pain during the test itself, um, and they felt that they had the right to be able to make decisions on behalf of him and that the test they felt could cause harm to him, so they did not want the test to proceed. This went to court, and ultimately the court's decision there was that the physicians needed to have seek- sought family's consent to perform the evaluation, and therefore, because the family was not providing consent, uh, they could not proceed with doing the test. Uh, the 
patient was ultimately discharged home, and there was no further legal action taken in that case. The second case was in Virginia, the case of a patient whose last name was Lawson, uh, whose family also objected to performance of apnea testing uh, after dem- demonstrating that she was comatose uh, and that she uh, had no brainstem reflexes. When the hospital sought to perform the apnea test, the family refused to do so, um, and they noted that they only believed that cardiac death was death based upon their religion, that they had the right to make decisions on behalf of their daughter, and they feared that the test could cause harm. The local court ruled that it was not necessary for consent to be obtained uh, before the apnea test was performed. Uh, The family appealed this decision. However, before a a further decision could be made based upon the appeal, the patient's heart stopped, and ultimately the family withdrew this uh, case, withdrew their appeal. So there was no further decision made on the case. Okay. So with that background, <laughs> um, why don't uh, 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 Dr. Lewis, you have the, the first article, if you will, in a way the whole point counterpoint starts, and the idea of should informed consent be required, um, you say no, and so please uh, expand. Sure. So brain death is legal death throughout the country. Uh, brain death first came about in, in the United States or was introduced in the United States in the 1960s um, at Harvard, and then subsequently in 1981, the Uniform Determination of Death Act was written by a, a group of ethicists, lawyers, and the Uniform uh, uh, State Laws throughout the country. And subsequent to that, all 50 states have included brain death as part of their legal determination of death. As a result, brain death is legal death in every state, similar to cardiopulmonary death. We don't seek consent to perform a cardiopulmonary death evaluation, so there's no reason why we should seek consent in order to perform a brain death evaluation. Okay. Uh, well, maybe I can respond to that then. Um, I think I, I have the, the uphill battle here uh, because um, I think the, the facts are that Clinicians typically do not seek consent before doing brain death testing, and uh, surveys of neurologists show that most of them do not think it should be required. Um, I've been practicing intensive care medicine for over 30 years now and have diagnosed uh, brain deaths on many, many occasions. Uh, I just heard something on the phone. Is that? Yeah, it was me. I apologize. Apparently, University of Chicago didn't pay its phone bill, and I got suddenly disconnected. <laughs> so ah, okay. I, I apologize, but uh, uh, it was blissfully silent for the two of you, I suppose, without me yapping, so that's great. <laughs> so should I continue where I left off? Please, start over please. There? Nope. Please do. Please do. All right. So uh, I guess where I was was uh, to comment on my own experience. So I've been, um, I've been in attending here at uh, Boston Children's Hospital for a little over 30 years now, and uh, uh, diagnosed brain death many, many times. Um, And I would say in most cases I did not uh, seek consent for it. Um, These cases where families um, have been objecting to the testing, though, I think are interesting. Um, And um, uh, let me give a little bit of the sketch as to why I think uh, consent um, should be necessary. Remember that the, our doctrine of informed consent is based on the legal concept of a battery, and the definition of a battery is unconsented touching. Merely touching is, is a battery if it's done without the permission of the patient. So really everything we do in medicine, everything we do does require informed consent, regardless of the level of the risk involved or anything else. 
Now, I think what confuses a lot of clinicians is that when patients come into the hospital, they sign a general consent for treatment. And barring things like surgery or other invasive procedures, we typically do not formally seek the permission of the patient before doing things to them. You know, we, we take their vital signs, we give them medications, we do all sorts of things without asking for permission. And uh, that may look like we're doing it without consent, but in fact, that's not true. Um, that the general consent that patients sign is sort of a presumption of consent, unless we would have a reason to believe that they might object to about to what we're going to do to them, or if they explicitly say they don't want it. So, you know, if, uh, if uh, a nurse comes up to a patient and says, you know, it's time to take your medicine now, um, and the patient says, no, I, I'm not going to take my pills right now, if the nurse were to force that patient to take those pills, that would be a battery. That would be treating that patient without consent. That would be violating the patient's rights. Um, and so, you know, when a patient agrees to have a chest X-ray or agrees to have their vital signs taken, those are all situations where we're presuming consent because um, we have no reason to think the patient would object, and they're not actually objecting. And, um, you know, I think that oftentimes this does apply to apnea testing for, uh, for brain death. I don't want to overstate the case here. I think, you know, when I go up to a family and I say, uh, you know, your, your son, your daughter has had a devastating brain injury, and what we'd like to do now is to do testing to see if they meet the criteria for neurological determination of death. Uh, you know, the great majority of the time, families uh, offer no objections, and in fact, they want to know because this can be a benefit to them. Um, in a, you know, in a couple of ways. One, to bring closure, um, that there's absolutely no chance of recovery, and also because it can permit the uh, possibility of, uh, of organ donation, which um, can be of great solace to families, you know, who are, are losing a loved one. Um, but the problem is, what about those situations where families uh, do object? And um, so this isn't a monologue. I'll, I'll say, you know, I think that, that families could have reasonable uh, grounds for objecting um, based either on religious or cultural beliefs or their perception about risks of the procedure, et cetera. And so um, just like in any other case in medicine, I'm not, I'm not exceptionalizing brain death uh, testing in any way, just like in everything else we do in medicine, if we have a reason to believe that the patient or family would not want this, we have an obligation to explore it with them and get their permission before we do it. Why don't I pause there, because uh, I've said a lot, and uh, see uh, what, how Arian might respond. Uh, well, so first, I guess, addressing where you sort of ended off in terms of the fact that families uh, should have or could have potentially reasonable grounds for objecting. I think that that's definitely true. I think that when families make their objections, their objections are based upon their reasonable beliefs uh, or perhaps based on their religious beliefs, which, of course, we should be able to respect. Um, and certainly, obviously, these situations are very complicated when they arise. Uh, number one, I think that in terms of the issue you brought up about lack of understanding, 
understanding of the situation, I think it's really important when brain death is being addressed that there be significant amount of time spent communicating with families and educating families about what brain death means on a legal perspective and on a medical perspective and what their anticipation could be for this person in so much as that at this juncture when you determine brain death that this person is indeed dead and that there's no ability for recovery and that all tests that have been performed based upon the criteria for determination of brain death that have been laid out uh, for both pediatric and adult patients, that there is no possibility for recovery based upon that. I think that's a really important thing to be able to convey. Uh, In terms of the religious issues, I think it is certainly really important for us to be able to respect religion uh, and freedom of religion. At the same time, though, I think that death is something that has to be a finite thing. It's not something that it should be an option for Do you want this person to be considered dead now, or do you feel like you have a different belief for when the death is going to occur? Orthodox Hindus believe that death doesn't occur until the funeral pyre, so until actually that person is being cremated. So surely we certainly wouldn't say, okay, well, you believe death hasn't occurred from an Orthodox Hindu perspective, so we have to keep on doing everything. Or if you were to have somebody who said that they didn't believe that cardiopulmonary death was death, that we would say, all right, well, you know, you don't believe that cardiopulmonary death is death, so I'm not going to I'm not going to perform my evaluation. I'm not going to listen to the heart. I'm not going to look at the pupil. I'm not going to feel for the pulse because you don't believe that this is death and you're telling me that it's not acceptable for me to perform that evaluation. If we're not going to seek permission to perform an evaluation for cardiopulmonary death, which obviously we don't do, then we surely shouldn't seek an evaluation to perform an evaluation for brain death. Yeah, I think... No, go ahead, Bob. Okay, well, I mean, I think I'm making a little bit different argument here because you're correct that... In the United States, um, our brain death criteria are the legal definition of death. And um, once that determination is made, uh, that the person is legally dead. Um, And, you know, at that point, we may want to talk about, well, do we make religious accommodation? Some states require it, such as New Jersey, as you know, New York to a lesser extent. What I'm really talking about more here is our rights to perform procedures on patients without their consent. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's, there, uh, coming up with examples is a little bit difficult, but let me give you a couple. So um, one that uh, we discussed a, a great deal a number of years ago was whether we could do HIV testing on patients without their consent because we felt that there was a powerful reason why we needed to know HIV status. Um, Taking care of these patients was going to expose the doctors and nurses to a potentially lethal risk. And uh, that's a very compelling reason for saying that we needed to know that information. Uh, And yet, you know, at the end of the day, we said, uh, no, that... um, drawing a person's blood and running it in the lab without their permission would violate their rights. It would be a battery. And so we went another way and we adopted universal precautions and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, that was a case, that was a situation where there were powerful reasons why we might have thought we needed to get information. And even if the family did not give us permission to get that information, we should be able to get it anyway. And, and that's not where we fell out. I'll mention just one other. I mean, it's maybe not as, I don't know. Um, I'll just mention it because it's one that we've dealt with at at 
our hospitals here. And that is the, the uh, um, idea that uh, our medical students and our residents need to learn how to do pelvic exams on women. And so for many years, many hospitals had the view that when a woman gave general consent at the time of admission to the hospital, that she was giving permission to have pelvic exams performed under anesthesia. And the, the reason was, again, you know, pretty compelling. People need to learn how to do this exam. It's an important part of, of providing medical care. And yet, that was one of those situations where, okay, you might be able to go ahead and do that if you had no reasons to believe that the patient might object. But in that case, of course, it wasn't true. A number of women, if they knew about this, would object and did object. And today, I don't know of any hospitals in the country that will do that procedure under the general consent for treatment. They will seek the woman's specific informed consent. So those are just a couple of examples of where we've tried to get around the idea of seeking consent for a procedure or a treatment, where at the end of the day, we've decided it wasn't a good idea. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the judge in the Callaway case, that the first one you mentioned, I think got it right. Um, when he was talking about the case, he said, look, it, testing for brain death is a medical procedure, and medical procedures require the informed consent of the patient or surrogate. So no, is it a procedure? Is it a procedure? <laughs> I'll throw that out there. <laughs> I'll leave that back to Bob to answer since he's making that argument. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, listen, you know, what are we, what are we doing during brain death testing? Um, I mean, uh, parts of it are, of course, fairly innocuous. They're, they're doing a physical exam. But when we do the apnea test, um, we are uh, causing an acute rise in uh, PCO2, which in patients... Uh, causes or can often cause a, a rise in intracranial pressure and can lead to subsequent brain injury. I know that, um, uh, Ariane, maybe I'll, I'll quote you from the article. Um, in addressing this risk, you wrote that although there is a theoretical risk that a rise in PCO2 could be harmful, this risk is not clinically meaningful due to the extent of injury that is present prior to the apnea test. And um, as, as Kyle pointed out, and, I, and you mentioned it as well, we always do the apnea test last because we want to make sure that all of the other tests, which don't involve a risk of additional injury, are consistent with brain death before we do this one that does have this theoretical risk. And I guess, Ariane, the, the, the point that I would ask you is at the time you're doing the test, you don't know yet that the patient is dead. If you knew the patient was dead, you wouldn't need to do the test. So that if this patient is still alive, allowing the PCO2 to abruptly rise to the levels that we do could be, and I would think probably is, harmful, and in some cases at least could, could cause additional brain injury. So it seems to me that since we don't know that the patient is yet dead, we are still treating them as a living patient, and we are doing a procedure that actually has a real risk of harm. So I think first I would argue that the apnea test isn't a procedure. The apnea test is testing that's performing an evaluation similar to the bedside evaluation in order to assess the patient in order to know what their status is, but it's not a procedure in so much as changing anything 
medically for the patient in so much as doing a surgery or anything like that is a medical procedure. Doing this is just doing an evaluation rather than a procedure from my perspective. First, but Arian, you're, manipulating, you're manipulating the physiology. I mean, when you look in somebody's eyes or, you know, you're not manipulating their physiology, but when you allow their PCO2 to go above 60, you are, you are definitely manipulating their physiology. And I don't think that changing the physiology makes it get characterized as a procedure so much as still an evaluation. All you're doing is making an assessment. Isn't the ventilator changing the physiology artificially? I would agree with that as well. Let me, let me, let me throw that grenade out there. <laughs> well, I mean, what, okay, so we have a patient who is alive with a very, very severe brain injury. And, you know, um, again, let me back up here and say that I think in that situation, many families have an interest in knowing if the patient meets brain death criteria for the reasons we talked about, closure as well as the opportunity to donate organs. But when a family um, does not see those things as a benefit and for religious or cultural reasons um, does not accept the brain criteria as, as a, uh, a, a meaningful understanding of death, then to manipulate the physiology in a way that could be harmful um, seems to me like pretty clear you would need their permission to do that. And, 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 you know, even if you're calling it an evaluation and not a procedure, um, that seems to be sort of a distinction without a difference. I mean, if it's evaluation, an evaluation that has the potential for harming the patient, any form of touching would require their consent. Well, so first, obviously, we don't get consent for every single thing that happens in terms of a physical exam for a patient. Um, but second, I think in terms of the potential for harm here, because the apnea test is done last, and the reason why the apnea test is done last is that once you've actually demonstrated that the patient is comatose and has no brainstem reflexes, then the odds that they're actually going to have any signs of life that they're going to breathe on the apnea test are very low. Uh, Maude Al published a series in 2006 that demonstrated that 90% uh, of patients who were comatose and had no brainstem reflexes were unable to breathe spontaneously. So in general, the expectation certainly is in, for in performing the apnea test that once you've gotten to that point, provided that you've conducted the rest of your evaluation appropriately according to the guidelines and found that the patient was indeed comatose and had no brainstem reflexes, that there's really a very low likelihood that you're going to find that they are able to breathe spontaneously. And even if they are able to breathe spontaneously, then obviously they've also had such significant injury to the rest of the brain that what you're talking about in terms of the possibility of changing anything is merely the respiratory centers in the medulla. So I don't think that actually raising that PCO2 is causing a significant change or risk of harm to the patient themselves once you've reached that point. If you did the apnea test first, then obviously that would be something that you would be doing sort of out of order and inducing the risk of harm, but once you've done everything else and demonstrating that, demonstrated that this patient already has such significant injury at that point, then the apnea test and the harm associated with that is minimal, particularly if you follow the guidelines and pre-oxygenate the patient appropriately, have their blood pressure appropriately elevated when you're doing the evaluation, make sure that they have an appropriate fluid status for the evaluation. So the risk of harm becomes very small when you follow all those guidelines. So, all right, let's follow the logic of what you're saying here. Um, 
again, if, if we knew that the patient was dead, we wouldn't need to do the apnea test. So you don't know that yet. You know that they have a very severe brain injury, but you don't know that they're dead. Um, you're saying that if, in fact, they do breathe during the apnea test, and I've certainly had that happen. I've had patients who fulfilled all of the other criteria and then breathed during the apnea test. Um, you agree that at that point you may cause additional harm, but your argument seems to be that we've already established that they are so brain damaged that causing additional harm isn't really a harm because they've already been so harmed. And, you know, that seems to be something that not all families would agree with. Um, it still has that potential for harm. And, you know, I've had uh, more than one occasion, not, not a lot, but, but more than one, where we did the uh, apnea test uh, at point A and the patient breathed, and we come back 24 hours later and we do the apnea test and the patient doesn't breathe. And it's, you know, not exactly clear. Was this just progression of brain swelling that led to uh, the difference in the apnea test? Or did the first apnea test actually cause that small amount of additional brain damage to the brain stem so that on the second testing, the apnea test uh, was positive? And in other words, did, did the testing actually make the patient brain dead? I, you know... I'm, I'm with you that these patients, we've already established that they've got very, very severe brain damage. But that's not the same as saying that we know that they're dead, and it does seem to me to be ethically relevant if the testing that we're doing could actually cause further harm, even to the point of, of resulting in their death. So I think that would be an appropriate question in terms of whether that rise in PCO2 could have caused things to change, because obviously you can certainly say, hey, we don't know. You know, we did something. Could that have been the something that caused this situation to change since they were breathing yesterday and not breathing today? But for the fact that when you have a patient, not a brain-dead patient, but just any patient that's retaining CO2 who has CO2 levels that are above 60, who you then say, oh, hey, your levels are high, you know, let's intubate you and deal with what the situation is, fix your PCO2, that patient is capable of going back to normal. So it's not like during that period when they were retaining their CO2 that they have irreversible injury to their brain on any respect, not even necessarily in the direction of brain death, but in any semblance of cognitive difficulties or anything like that. That's something that's a reversible process. You fix the PCO2, they go back to their normal self. So under these circumstances, there's no reason to think that the situation would be different, that when you raise the PCO2, which I will say is for a few minutes, it's not like you're saying, oh, for a couple hours, we'll let your PCO2 rise and then see what happens. For a few minutes during the apnea test, you let that go. So there's no reason to say under those specific circumstances, that rise in PCO2 is going to cause the respiratory centers to say, well, we were really fragile already, and now we're just going to give out because the CO2 rose during this time period. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, but let me, let me ask you, if you had somebody with, let's say, severe traumatic brain injury, um, but they weren't near brain death, I mean, and, and the family is still uh, asking you to do the most effective cerebral resuscitation you can do, they know that the patient's not going to be normal on the, on the other end of this, but... They're hopeful for uh, enough neurological function so that the patient survives. Certainly, if by accident that patient became disconnected from the ventilator and their PCO2 went up above 60, we wouldn't think that was a good thing to do to them. I mean, we would say that that's potentially a very harmful thing to do to them. Um, why would we view it differently in the context of 
you know, just a little bit further along when we're now evaluating the patient for brain death. Well, I wouldn't specifically under those circumstances be worried about the fact that the CO2 is rising so much as if this patient needed to be on the ventilator and now they're not on the ventilator. Obviously, it's not just that the CO2 is rising, but what's going on with their oxygen. There's obviously some other issues going on from that perspective. So I would be certainly concerned under those circumstances. Would I feel as though I was causing long-term harm to the patient? No, I wouldn't be like, oh, I can't believe this happened. You know, we've harmed this patient further. I would say, let's just put the ventilator back on here. So I wouldn't take that from the same sort of perspective and make me think that being off of the ventilator, even if that patient was off of the ventilator for 10 minutes and, you know, nobody was at the bedside, the vent was off, and the CO2 was rising, I certainly wouldn't feel as though during that 10 minutes that that rise in CO2, provided that the oxygen is fine, but that that rise in CO2 was going to cause long-term damage to that patient. Okay. I think, I think we've probably, I mean, I think we've probably mined this about as far as it will go. <laughs> um, so, so let's, can, we, can I take it one different direction? Because both of you yeah. comment also. I mean, the other I think, issue to this is, so it sounds like from both your perspectives, it doesn't come up often, even, even if you're doing a formal consenting process versus a sort of coming to the family and explaining the general, you know, this is your loved one and here's what we're, you know, we're worried about. And, and it's not that often that there seems to be any level of objection. But... Um, one of the things that, that you both bring up is that this concern um, from the staff of a medical center and the other doctors and the nurses is there is this sense of futility and this sense of wasted resources that everyone in the you know who's in charge of this patient clinically thinks the person is dead and we need one final test to prove that and then we have someone objecting and now we're going to be spending time and resources and energy you know, to be blunt, keeping a dead thing, a dead person alive. And that, that generates a lot of angst amongst care providers. And there's also the concern with shrinking resources. That's a lot of time and money, potentially, going into this scenario. And that's where I think also some of the angst comes from. So I'm, and you both addressed this in your article, so I was wondering if we could expand that direction. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. I think that certainly during the time period, if you have somebody that you're getting ready to perform brain death on and you believe that the patient is brain dead and there's a holdup because the family is objecting to performance of the apnea test and on an institutional level or on a state level, the decision is that you're not going to proceed with the apnea testing at that time, then that is very challenging. It's challenging for the family. It's challenging for the clinical staff. It's challenging for everybody that's involved on an emotional level, but it's also challenging in terms of saying how use of resources, specifically use of an ICU bed. So if you have a patient that's in the emergency room that needs to be in an ICU bed, in the meantime, you only have the beds that you have in your unit and one of these beds is occupied by somebody that you believe to be dead, that's also challenging. What are you supposed to do with that patient who's in the emergency room? You have to reallocate them to go somewhere else and suddenly there's this overflow of somebody who should have been in your intensive care unit who's going to another location or staying in the emergency room because you have this patient who you believe to be dead in the ICU. I think that there are issues, certainly, that deal with um, the social and ethical consequences and emotional consequences for families and for the hospital staff um, related to uh, refusal of, of apnea testing. Yeah, well, let me, let me uh, agree completely that the issue of futility... <laughs> we agree. And... <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. There's always common ground. There's always common ground. <laughs> um, uh, th this 
issue of futility is, I, I think, um, the biggest challenge that we face in, in our ICUs today. I mean, correct. Uh, and the issues of moral burnout are enormous. Um, uh, so I want to, I want to uh, totally agree there. What I, the, the question I want to ask is how much this question about keeping patients with a diagnosis of brain death in the ICU will really impact um, our ICU resources and whether it's worth the price we're going to pay for that. So um, let me just briefly say um, that in Japan, the diagnosis of brain death is only made in those circumstances where families want to donate organs. The, the majority of patients who, meet, who, who would meet brain death criteria in the United States are never tested for it in, in Japan unless the family specifically requests that testing because they want to donate the organs. Um, and yet studies have been done in Japan which show that the number of patients who are brain dead or would be brain dead if they were tested for it um, is, is really quite small. And um, I, I, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I think part of it is because, um, at least for adults, uh, most of the time when patients um, are brain dead, they have a lot of other physiologic instability, and it's actually quite difficult to keep them biologically alive in the unit. Um, right. Uh, that has been... Um, I know it's been studied in Japan, certainly talking with my colleagues in Israel that have the same situation. So in Israel, there's uh, certain uh, segments of Orthodox Judaism that do not accept the diagnosis of brain death. They don't attempt to make the diagnosis, but they tell me it's really not that much of a problem. Uh, these patients uh, end up not surviving that long anyway. And even in our own country, we've had a natural experiment about this because New Jersey, for at least 20 years or so, has had a religious exemption to brain death, just like in Israel. And again, while I don't know of any specific studies about it, conversations I've had with people who do intensive care in New Jersey have said, yeah, you know, there's the occasional patient, but it's not that big of a deal. And so, you know, while I while I want to agree with the big picture of the problem of futility, I'm, I'm thinking that this is actually a pretty narrow slice. And then you have to look at the price we're going to pay for this, which is that, first of all, um, when it comes up, these are families with deep religious convictions uh, about, you know, that life ends when the heart stops. Um, it's not, there's nothing illogical, there's nothing irrational, there's nothing immoral about that view. It's just a view that's different from what we have. And while I completely agree with Arian, we don't have to always respect religious views, I think we should have good reasons for, for overriding them when we do. And I'm just not sure that, you know, this actually rises to that level. It would also make this uh, uh, consent for apnea testing the only thing we do in medicine that does not require informed consent. We would make a unique case out of this. And is it really worth it? You know, I mean, is it, is it uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a long run for a short slide, if you will? Um, do we, do we want to go to these extremes in order to solve a problem that may not be that big of a problem? So a couple of comments on that. So first, I think, you know, obviously I don't know the specifics of the ICUs involved in, in Japan and in Israel, but I would say that at least relative to our hospital, perhaps those hospitals are not on surge regularly, and so they're not experiencing issues related to having patients be maintained in the ICU uh, for longer periods of time after they believe to be brain dead. 
Second, with respect to the issue of uh, in medical instability after brain death, definitely, obviously, there's a number of medical problems that arise after brain death in terms of DI or in a patient where you presume to be brain dead in this DI, hypotension, uh, coagulopathy, uh, et cetera. Um, but certainly, if you actually continue aggressive medical management, such as was the case in um, the Virginia case that we mentioned earlier for Lawson, uh, with organ support, her heart continued to beat for months. So it's not necessarily something where we're saying, hey, this, you know, even if we support this person because of the fact that we're not doing the apnea test, but this will just be a couple days or a couple hours or something like that. We're looking at the possibility of having somebody maintained in the ICU for months. Lastly, with respect to the issue of these families having deep religious convictions that they don't believe that brain death is death, I would say that that's certainly the case in some situations where families are objecting to use of neurologic criteria to determine death, but that's definitely not the case in all situations. There are situations in which families are objecting to uh, determination of death using neurologic criteria based upon the fact that they inherently believe that the patient will recover or that they just can't accept the current situation. Um, I think there's a number of different reasons whereby somebody would object. And even if you're not looking specifically at the subpopulation that objects, if you open the door to say, we're going to offer consent to everybody, we're going to give them everybody the opportunity to say, do you want us to do this evaluation to determine whether or not they're dead, or do you want us to just continue doing what we're doing and maintaining things? Obviously, you're going to have a much bigger number of people who are not consenting because now suddenly they're going to say, well, I mean, you're giving me this option. Like, I wonder if they're going to get better. Let's give some more time. And suddenly it invalidates the whole concept that brain death is death. Uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, just a brief response. I mean, um, you, you, you say that, you know, these patients can live for a long time, and that's typically with children. Uh, but the, the point is, if they are clinically stable, they don't need to be in the intensive care unit. So, uh, you know, you take the case of Jahai McMath, for example. She's been cared for at home uh, for a number of years now. So, if it, you know, if they are clinically unstable, they will tend not to survive that long. If they are clinically stable, they can often be transferred to another environment. Um, I guess the issue with respect to being transferred to another environment is that not so many places are willing or interested in taking a patient that's believed to be brain dead into their facility, especially on account of the fact that many insurance companies aren't going to pay for a patient to be maintained if they're believed to be brain dead. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm I'm 100% with you on this. It's just when we think about the big picture, if I look in my ICU and I look look at the number of cases – where I know they are not going to survive in the long run and where enormous resources are being expended, that is a big problem. And, you know, there's a number of different approaches that have been taken towards this issue of futility. And one of the, right now in our ICU, we have a case where we're in discussions about whether to unilaterally override the patient, the, the family's demands, the parents' demands for continued use of life support. Uh, that those same pathways could be in place even for families who reject uh, establishing the diagnosis of brain death. We could, you know, they are just as futile as many of the patients that I have who are not brain dead, clearly not brain dead. And that I would suggest a different approach, one based on that this is futile and should not be done, would be applicable to both groups and, and I think would, would really mitigate this problem about brain death. So are you well, arguing that in the interest of futility or if we believed that it was futile to continue care for patients that were brain dead, that we should just discontinue support and not perform the evaluation? 
Yeah, on the basis, of, yeah, we, we do. This is the issue we have with patients with very severe degrees of brain injury. And as you know, as we point out, by the time you get to the apnea test, you've established a very severe degree of brain injury. Um, you know, in uh, so Texas has probably the, the most experience with this. Would go to an ethics committee. They would agree. They would agree that further treatment is inappropriate based on the severe degree of brain injury, and uh, life support would be stopped. So I think that you know, obviously, at this juncture, if the concept of brain death was just sort of just getting onto the table, and there were questions of what should we do when somebody's brain dead, how should we proceed? Then perhaps it would be reasonable under those circumstances to say, well, you know, it's really obvious that they have this really severe injury. Let's just, you know, question it's question this, uh, how to proceed on the grounds of futility and take this to our individual ethics committee and discuss this issue. And that would be something that would be sort of at the like grassroots stage. But at this point, brain death has made it to a national forum whereby it's something that's legal everywhere. So therefore, for every institution to have to deal with on an institutional level, every single patient whereby you believe that they're brain dead and going to the ethics committee and having the discussion of, so what should we do? You know, we think that this situation's futile. Should we discontinue support? Shouldn't we? I think that, that that's obviously, I mean, we're sort of, we're past that phase at this juncture in terms yeah, of being we, able to we, say no, how to proceed. Are. You're, you're not, you're, I don't think you're, it's not quite what I'm saying. I agree with you that brain death is legal death, absolutely. If the testing is done and it shows the patient's brain dead, you don't need to go to the ethics committee. They've met the legal criteria for death. There's not an ethical issue there. Um, it's, it's more, are we going to abandon this deep commitment we have to informed consent um, in this one case, which is really the only case where we would be seeking an exception? We seek, we seek consent in every other thing we do in medicine. And I, I would disagree a little bit with your characterization of it as, you know, saying to every family, do you want us to do this testing? Um, again, I think most families are very grateful for the prognostic information that their loved one is never going to recover. That's very useful information for the vast majority of families. You're not going to see every family questioning this. But for that small number that do, um, I, I think it would be very unusual given all of our other commitments in medicine and to respecting patients, for us to isolate this as the one case we're going to say, no, you don't have any say about this testing. Yeah, I think the thing is that you're right, that there are at present only a small number of families that object to brain death determination and that most families, as you noted, uh, are appreciative of having the opportunity for evaluation to be performed whereby you can say definitively that this person's not going to recover. But I do think that there are a portion of people who are in between who right now are accepting brain death and are not creating objections who, when given the choice, when given an option to say, I need you to sign this form in order to consent to allow me to do this evaluation, who would reflect on that and say, well, that's interesting. I'm being given a choice here. Should I say yes? I'm not sure. Let me think about that. And then would actually hedge on the side of saying, no, I don't, I don't actually think I want you to proceed with that evaluation, not because of any deep-seated religious perspective, but just on account of the fact that they say, well, I, I, I just don't see a reason for this. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with you proceeding with this evaluation now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right that there, there, will, there will be more patients like that. I guess it's sort of a, an empirical question that we don't know the answer to as to how many there will be. Well, it's always been the problem, right? Brain death, the body still looks very alive. And so to a, to a lay person sitting there and to a loved one, you know, they're quite alive, I mean, to, you know, to, the, to their eyes. And you're asking me now, do I want to do a test that will make them dead uh, when, you, when it comes out you know, negative? Um, 
that you could see a lot of people saying, as long as I don't sign this consent, they're still alive. Yep. I would I would say I wouldn't I wouldn't imagine that they would be signing a consent. Um, well, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's, sorry, I, I was I, I wasn't yeah. trying to process it. <laughs> but good, but good, good point. Well, look, we've been talking for a while. I want to make sure there's not um, some other major point that we needed to make. You know, in, in the in the crux of this, I think it's been a fantastic discussion. It was exactly what I was hoping for. Um, so thank you both of you. Um, but um, has there been any other key point that we, that we haven't really touched upon? I think that we've we've hit upon at least everything from my perspective relative to this issue, Bob. Yeah, I agree. Well, I I can't thank you both enough. This was fantastic. This was exactly what we were hoping for. So I appreciate your time, both of you, and what a fantastic discussion. No problem. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Okay.